Hello, and welcome to yet another installment of Unraveling Religion. My name is Joel Lessies, and I'm here with a good friend and uh, both personally and professionally, Carl Shallowhorn. Carl, how are you today? That's uh, You asked me this earlier, and I said, as I've been saying the last few days, it's a very interesting question. It, it, it depends on when you ask. There's yeah. a lot of things going on in my life right now, professionally, personally, intimately with friends, and even within my own journey. Um, so moment to moment, I could be, you know, doing okay. The next moment I could be shedding tears. Um, right now I'm okay. I'm, I'm facing some things with a dear friend who is, um, facing a terminal illness and it's, uh, certainly, well, it was diagnosed back in you know, the, the brain tumor was diagnosed in October of last year. And, uh, then, you know, as we know, when you kind of walk along the journey with someone, it has been, it has taught me a lot. As much as anything, how to try to be a friend to accompany someone on a journey of uncertainty. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I really feel, Carl, that the most important skill we will ever cultivate as a human being will be that very thing, how to be a friend. Could you give a little background? How would you like to describe yourself? Like, what do you do? How do you think of yourself? Uh, what? How do you spend your, your time? I'm a husband of 28 years and a father of two adult daughters. They're the proudest thing I have in my life. Wonderful young women who have grown up doing well. That's that's the best thing that any parent can want. I am a pretty much a lifelong member of the United Church of Christ. Uh, did not you know denomination? I I took as I like to say a seven year uh, journey into the wilderness in my late teens and twenties, as many people do, to explore other areas. But I got into long term. I got into twelve uh, step recovery at the age of twenty five, and that's really when things in my life changed, certainly for the better. And within a couple of years of getting clean, I went back to school. I'd, I'd managed to get my bachelor's degree in broadcasting, but I went back to school and took courses for counseling. And then um, that's where everything took off. I became a counselor at Buffalo General Hospital. I live with bipolar disorder and I had another manic episode. My wife was pregnant and so forth. It was a turn my life upside down. But as a result of that, having worked as a counselor, I decided I wanted to leave the profession. So I got my master's degree and worked in higher ed for 12 years. But in the course of that time, I realized that my real calling was in the world of really mental health, as we kind of called it then. So um, around 2007, 2008, I decided to just tell my story. First place first place I did it was my church. I, I told my story at my church. Yeah. I remember I went to my pastor. Uh, his name was Bruce McKay. You know, he's a former pastor. I went to him. I said, I said, Bruce, I, said, I, just want, I just want to share my story that recovery is possible. I just wanted to let people know about recovery. Because by that time, I've been clean for a while. I've been, you know, stable mentally, emotionally. Uh, and, and you know, not that I was the only one, but at that time, a lot of people, I mean, even then, I mean, it was like 2008, many people were still not talking about this stuff publicly. So many people in community don't even realize not just that recovery is possible, but it inverts that it seems like symptoms and distress and pathology are actually gifts and blessings. Well, and that's the thing too. I mean, it's like taking what could be considered uh, negative turning to positive. You know, um, I was able to take my life experience as someone who has addiction and, and lived with bipolar disorder, go along my recovery journey, and then help others. So what I've done since then. So I currently work at Mental Health Advocates of West New York. I'm the director of youth programs. I supervise a team of young people, youth care advocates, as they're called, who have lived experience, and they're phenomenal. I I consider them to be like my children. <laughs> they could be even age-wise, but they're like my kids. And and but. I get a chance to mentor them. I get a chance to 
you know, uh, work with them and help them become professionals, but also watch them grow. And that's the greatest privilege is to watch them grow as, as young people and mature and do things that, frankly, Joel, as I was saying, when I was their age, I couldn't have done that stuff. I couldn't have handled it. They're amazing. You know, you and I, we go back a little ways with the, the Mental Health Association, now Mental Health yeah. Advocates. We were both yeah. serving on the board of directors at that time, more or less a little intermittently, but we've a parallel journey, right? Your recovery, the MHA's role in that, and sort of where you see it now, how did that happen for you? Maybe other people are curious, you know? I worked at Damon College, now Damon University. Uh, you know, I spent 12 years in higher education. And around 2008 or so is when I got, as I say, my calling, if you want to call it that, to jump back into behavioral health. I, I wrote an article that was in the paper when Britney Spears was in the news and kind of outed myself as having bipolar disorder. And of course, Damon, small campus, nobody knew. And that was a career risk that turned out to be something positive because I ended up leaving Damon. I went to Horizon Health Services as a counselor for three and a half years. I was able to fall back on my previous experience. And then I got to a point at Horizon where I wanted to be, as I said, an advocate. I wanted to be on the public. I wanted to speak. I wanted to promote mental health. And and nothing against Horizon or where agencies were at the time. They're a different place now, interesting enough. But at the time, it was a message, well, we can't build for that. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, that's how it was back then. Right. I mean, that's how it was. You have to build for services. You can't build for someone going up. But they do it now, though. They do it now. So I left there, and I went briefly to a local home health care agency, I was a service coordinator. It, that was not what I wanted to be doing, but I was on the board for the MHA. And I also knew Michelle Brown from Compere. And so I connected with them and through a series of conversations, I ended up getting a job at the MHA uh, as director of uh, community advocacy. That was 2014. And that's where things really began to sort of develop. I got a lot of cool opportunities to sue, do some administrative work. I got a chance to do even some some media stuff. Like sometimes we get media inquiries. So when Ken Hausnack, who was executive director, wasn't available, sometimes I would step in and do some things. I, I did definitely got a chance to network and meet people. So it just gave me a chance to grow and do things that I probably would never have had a chance to otherwise. You know, I what I often I do uh, talk about my experience, I do offer my diagnosis. But that also goes along with my professional role as a writer and a blogger. So I was a blogger for Bipolar Magazine, which comes was published out of Buffalo. Joanne Doan is published. I met Joanne many years ago, so I blogged for them for many years. But then this past summer, the day after I got back from vacation, I got an email from the editors asking if I want to be a columnist. I'm now a columnist for BP. And I also know, I know some people are protective of offering their diagnosis. Because in the end, honestly, Joel, like you and I both know, it's a label. It's something insurance companies use. Uh, psychiatry is much more an art than it is a science. So totally, even though I know, I mean, there's there's commonalities. I mean, if you look at if you look at DSM uh, or you know, diagnostic manual, the 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 so-called Bible of of mental health, you know, conditions. I mean, so many of these these conditions have uh, similar symptoms. You know, like anxiety and and depression. It could be a uh, you know lack of concentration. When you go to see a professional, it's all subjective. You can't take, you know, I mean, there is some research to show brain scans, but really you can't take a blood test. You really, you've been such a generous uh, force mm-hmm. that you did a TEDx Buffalo talk. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could speak a little bit about that. What was that? Well, I know the topic, I watched it, but maybe you could talk a little bit about it. Oh, well, first of all, let me just say that day that I did it, um, I've had a lot of stressful experiences in my life. 
That was the single most stressful day I've ever had in my life. Sheer, like in the moment, all coming down at once because of a number of things. I mean, um, the circumstances at that time where uh, we were preparing for a move, my house. So I was simultaneously clearing out a room, trying to do last minute cramming to remember my, my talk, which is all has to be memorized. And then dealing with a situation for another organization I was working with, there's things going chaotic there. And it was just all the stuff coming down at once. And then I had to go stand in front of like 100 people uh, you know, on a stage with a clock. <laughs> so, all right. So, so the deal is, um, I, I, yeah, I had to apply. Um, and you know, so the process you apply, you give a too much pitch video. I found out on father's day of what was it, 2020, um, whatever date was, um, that I'd been accepted gain anxiety. I had so much anxiety going into this thing. At one point, Joel, I even said, I didn't want to do it to my coaches because you have coaches that help you. Sure. I said, sure. I want to do this. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to go up on that stage. I'm going to blank and I want to do it. They said, well, think about it, you know, just think about it. So I talked to a couple people, my therapist, my former therapist, Joel said, Carl, I said to you to do two things, take your medication and, and don't stop your therapy. But I'm telling you, you have to do this talk. <laughs> so I, I decided to do it. So that night I went up there and, uh, you know, got on the stage and uh, I had prepared so much, mm-hmm. so much. So I'm going, going through it. And then I get to the place where I skip the line. Mm. You know, and this is like muscle memory here, right? So I yeah, skip yeah. the line and, and I stop and I went back to try to catch myself. Okay, what did I remember? What did I forget? And I blanked out on stage in front of 100 people yeah. that I couldn't see with, with, with lights glaring on me with, with cameras. Yeah, yeah. And I'm standing there and I'm going like, oh, crap. You know, I said, for my first time, I, I just like, oh, shit. And, I, you know, and then what they tell you is don't move because they can edit. Yeah. So I stood there and I just had my hands in front of me, like, like, like folded and I just kind of looked down and I, and I swear, you know, they talk about like time passing slowly. I lost all track of time. Yeah. Um, I think it ended up being like almost 30 seconds. Yeah. So imagine being on stage for 30, with nothing. And you could, you couldn't hear a peep. Right. It's like, it's like almost like, I felt like, like everybody was collectively holding their breath. And, and mind you, I had, so it took this. I had every single my immediate support system with me. I had my wife, my two daughters, yeah. my best friend, my NA, my 12-step sponsor, his wife, my mentor that I've had since I've been four years old, and my aunt who's 97, my cousin. So I had like my key people there. And then all of a sudden it comes back. Wow. I pick up where I left off and, and I'm going and I, have, I get to my last few lines and I'm rolling. I looked down at the clock. It said one minute. And I said, I got this. And I finished. I said, I, I said, thank you. And then, of course, thunderous applause. And I walk off stage and my coach, Jeff, is standing against the wall. You know, so I walk along the wall. I walk up to him and I go up to him here. I go, I really pulled that one out of my ass, didn't I? And he, he just kind of smiled. And I went and I sat down, Joel, in the front seat on the front row where we're supposed to sit. And I said to myself, oh, my God, it's over. Wow. I did it. And it was the biggest. I mean, to talk about like a million ton weight was off my shoulders i finally got this thing so it was it is the single biggest professional accomplishment i've ever had in my life you know it's like it's like i can go anywhere and talk now most places you go you can have notes whatever whatever this is like like naked on stage so it was a true test of i say faith let me let me give a little brief story so um i'm into tattoos i have all kinds of tattoos <laughs> so um uh you know with the semicolon tattoo is yeah. for survivors of, of suicide and, and supporters. 
So I had the semicolon for many years, but I also wanted to get um, other additional to make it into an eye so I can make the word faith on my wrist. That's where the, the tattoo is. So I was going to wait until after the TED Talk to get it done, but I decided to get it beforehand. As I say, that TED Talk is the, Joel, the single biggest faith building experience I've ever had in my life. When, when Joel, like I said, my belief system is, is, in, is in God and so forth. And I believe that, that, you know, they say God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. God got me to that moment. I, I can't explain it otherwise. I was blank. I, my, blank my brain went like kaput. I can't explain it other way. That's amazing. So that strength, really strengthened your faith. But what was the title of the talk, Carl? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the talk, the talk was African-American Men in Mental Health. This is opportunity. And as a, a person of color, I'm biracial, but I grew up, you know, black family and black culture. Um, and then certainly the interesting thing too, Joel, is that when I applied, it was the January before George Floyd. So they accept the application until April. They made the decision. Then George Floyd happened. So the timing itself for this talk was impeccable because I referenced George Floyd. You know, I, I referenced Daniel Prude from Rochester. I know Daniel, the uh, Daniel Prude story very well. Yeah, I was in Rochester. I referenced that. So I talked about these things in the talk. I talked about, you know, trauma. I talked about Rakesh. I talked about, as you know, in the talk, I talked about the uh, way that Black men are portrayed in the media. Going back to Birth of a Nation, the movie, yeah. um, all that stuff. So I tried to tie it all in and talk about all the challenges the black men experience with my child. But I also talked about the opportunity mm-hmm. where there's things being done to support black men and to offer opportunities for healing and um, you know, ways to connect with others. So it was it was an incredible experience. And I think, you know, ultimately, uh, just trying to share a message that I thought would be received. What are, what are some of the overlaps and specific uh, challenges of Black men in mental health? It is so deep, Joel. It is so deep. It is so deep, and I mentioned this too in my talk, that it goes back, you know, before the Middle Passage, uh, when when Africans were brought, brought to, uh, you know, the, the continents here um, in the West. Um, <laughs> you know, you figure slavery itself was the first act that essentially broke down uh you know black men broke down and even family structures i mean you hear about these stories how black families were separated that was all obviously all by design and you know and even today i mean i don't want to get all political but even today it happens where there's just these systems are set up that that are oppressive and so black men and mental health is so complicated because in you know in black culture black men are told pretty much don't show any signs of vulnerability or weakness you're going to be good to be soft. I was at a 12-step meeting recently. This is also a little on the side. And it's my home group. We have this thing called home group. You go there regularly. And uh, I'm not going to go all of what this guy said, but some of the fact of that, in, you know, in the black community, light-skinned guys are considered to be soft. Mm. In other words, light-skinned guys could be weak and just, you know, like, and I'm a light-skinned guy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but that, but that, yeah, and we, we all laugh. Because like it's all like you have to know the culture, you know, and then we're ribbing. The guys were like, even the twelve me, you're not supposed to cross talk. There was even cross talk with that. Um, but uh, so it was, it was like, so because it was funny. Like the guy who actually said it's a comedian, real life, he's a comedian. So, um, but anyway, um, but but it's true. Like there's these things in black culture that are meant to protect men, um, you know, and and oftentimes, you know, uh, and it, it's so true that black men are so. I guess would be I don't know if the word is mischaracterized or or inappropriately characterized or there's stick there's myths and misconceptions 
feelings. I mean, whoever would thought black men have feelings. I, there's a TV show um, that I highly recommend. Uh, it's called Atlanta. I don't know if you've heard of Atlanta with Donald Glover. Donald Glover is also Charles Gambino, the 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 artist who did the song um, uh, "This Is America," which caused all the controversy several years ago. The video. That's an incredible. Oh God, video. isn't it an amazing video? It's powerful. It is so powerful. Yeah. So that's Donald Glover. So he he's uh, you know one of the creators, producers of the show called uh, Atlanta. And but in the last episode, season, he, it shows him going to therapy. So even in the t- like in the TV series, like a black man going to therapy, what, what? No, that that doesn't happen. And it showed, but see, it showed the beautiful thing is it showed what would be a real depiction. It showed him going to another black male for therapy, and and what would be an ideal situation for all black men. Well, we know that in our country, there are so few black providers, men or women, that that's I don't say impossible, but it's very for the very few. Um, but the fact that of opening up the possibility for seeking help and encouraging men, even amongst themselves. Uh, you know, we, we both share this passion for mental health. And I know that we're both, we both at least feel that we have our fingers on the pulse of thought, where thought is going trending in mental health. And I'm wondering if you could speak about, probably you're really excited about this, I would imagine, if if I had to guess, the peer movement, yeah. Black men in mental health. Yeah, I knew exactly where you're going as soon as you said the trends, because the trends is peers. Absolutely. Like, everybody's talking about peers, because it's the lived experience. You know, the peer movement, believe it or not, uh, goes back as far as, well, sort of probably even before this, but goes back to the roots of, of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And even before that, the Oxford Group, which is what AA was formed based on. It's mutual support. It's the experience of one person helping another that have a similar condition. The beauty of peer is not one way. So like you and I are doing this right now. This is an example of the peer movement, the peer mm-hmm. effect. We are sharing with one another. We're validating one another. We're constructively building one another up through witnessing, listening, and offering what wisdom we have. This, this is an example of the peer movement. Absolutely. And, and that's the beauty. So, um, but in the behavioral health, mental health world, it really came out of like, I'd say the, the late 60s, 70s, yeah. there was a guy and I, don't, I forget his name, but he was known as Howie the Harp. You probably know the name Howie the Harp because he played the harmonica. <laughs> um, and Howie uh, was one of the first peers. and They, they really kind of created a movement in New York City of, of basically advocacy, self-determination, uh, there's a saying, nothing with us without us. So it was a whole movement that began in the city that really evolved and grew and now is national. And, and finally, after all these years, the, the providers, the community-based agencies are recognizing the value peers and bringing them into the ranks. There's certification selection where we are in New York State. There's certification for peers. My team of youth for advocates, they're certified, credentialed, professional. Much of my career was spent in Medicaid. So yes. New York State, a little crash course in Medicaid, uh, Medicaid is 75, 25%. So 75% of the money is allocated from the national CMS, Medicaid nationally. New York State matches at 25%. And New York State, when they receive the Medicaid funds, can and filter that in ways through their laws to allocate Medicaid funds for whatever they deem uh, can be approved nationally, but specifically to New York State. And one of the things that New York State has done is that they've given a, a pretty fair, reimbur- like a healthy reimbursement rate 
for peer advocates, for peer specialists, which allows a sustainable livelihood, which is vital, vital. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm glad you said sustainable livelihood because that's one of the big problems is another aside is what we're dealing with now with uh, recruitment and retention of workforce in the healthcare, mental health and behavioral health care and healthcare in general. Um, there's been some incentives recently and more incentives from the state to recruit behavioral health professionals of, of all kinds, but especially peers. And, you know, the beautiful thing also about a peer is you only need a high school grad, uh, education. I mean, it's lived experience. You don't get that in a book. You have to go through training because you have to understand how important listening is. You have to understand even the, the, the whole movement. You have to understand what it means to, to offer appropriate. The bottom line is you don't learn a lot of that through your typical textbook learning or college learning. Um, in fact, for example, Joel, you'll appreciate this. At our agency, Mental Health Advocates, we had a family peer advocate position open and they took away the, the college bachelor's degree requirement because they knew, like, why do we need this? We need someone who's lived through it. So the family peer advocates have children, have had children, in, you know, that have been uh, served. So why do you need a degree for that? In fact, you're probably eliminating a good part of your applicant pool. Yeah, definitely. And that that t- if we're going to talk about Black experience, opportunities for education, support, family wealth, and opportunities to go to college. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've noticed about Black culture, which... I think has been so pointedly uh, insightful for me about priority is I often see um, stories of people in in black community leaving education to take care of parents or people who are not well. And I, I see it often, I hear it often. And I understand that as a kind of connection and bond that maybe I don't, I'm not privy to or didn't grow up with. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I was on a panel back in September uh, on about the Tops Massacre. It was a, a Channel 7 thing. And it was amazing. Um, Zanetta Everhart, who is Zaire Everhart. Zaire Everhart was shot. He was injured. He wasn't killed, but he was shot. And Zanetta has been a very vocal supporter of her son and, you know, advocate and, and personally spoken out a lot about the massacre. But one thing she said, which is very interesting, is that despite all her success, she ended up working. She actually uh, was working with Tim Kenny's office. I think she still is. She's now running for uh, a local, um, you know, common council position. Still worked with Tim Kennedy, Albany, a lot of success. But with that, though, she said she still has to take care of her family. So that's the thing. Like they talk about generational wealth. One of the issues is that how do you build generational wealth if you are committed to take care of other family members who don't? have say the privileges that others do i mean there's redlining their bank loans mortgages which which are have a double standard so that if you make one late payment and you're black you're done whereas there's there's a lot more leeway and forgiveness if you're white and then don't even talk about the criminal justice system which certainly has its own uh financial penalties that if you are are, say have a sanction of some kind of as a financial penalty if you don't pay it you you get locked into that system and you have to pay it out until you get some relinquishment of of whatever you charge with and you're just a perpetual system and so it's like how do you dig yourself like you have you have like a a 10 foot ladder and a 15 foot hole yeah yeah, yeah. Right? you can never dig yourself out so i don't know if you know this i don't know if i've shared this with you but i'm on the board of nami uh, national alliance for yes Men- i do know that i do know that Nami buffalo so it's a local yep. chapter of nami there's a state chapter new york state has a nami chapter and there's a national headquarters, NAMI. 
And so one of the things that I want to talk to you about is that I'm chairperson of the advocacy committee. And on the advocacy committee, we've developed four subcommittees. And these four subcommittees are rural communities in mental health, hospitalization, CPEP in mental health, legislation subcommittee, and the fourth the fourth subcommittee is incarceration and mental health. Mm. So these are areas that we've targeted specifically through NAMI Buffalo that, you know, we're reaching out to uh, lawmakers and representatives and meeting with them to sort of further the education and reduce the stigma about the necessary voting to support mental health resources and mental health programs. And I know right. the governor, Kathy Hochul, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just had a very strong budget with tremendous support for mental health programs, including five billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. Do you are you familiar with that at all? Do you do you know? Oh, absolutely. That was that was big news. (laughs) We were all over that one. Um, so basically, about maybe yeah, five, six weeks, six weeks ago or so, uh, run, run, being in the air. Of course, when when the the governor announced her her proposed proposed budget, yeah, that still has to be voted on. Um, but her proposed budget for the coming year, uh, fiscal year, talked about $5 billion for uh, mental health. She talked about her state of the state address. And so at first, at first, before we knew what it was all about, we're like, yay, great money. But then it's all like, you know, what is it for? She talked about, you know, increasing inpatient beds. She talked about increasing, they're called CCBHCs, community care behavioral health clinics. So okay. um, they're like basically centers uh, that are like organizations that are being given money for a variety of services. Um, and then there's also going to be some critical, uh, you know, centers placed throughout the state. And I think one is being operated by Best Self here locally. Um, so, you know, a lot of these money is going forth and here and there, and, but there's no mention of peers. And that's a big thing right there. But also the idea of pay has not kept up with the cost of living increases over the years uh, to the point where even last year, it was like a two and a half percent bump, as we say, still doesn't keep up with the cost of living. So over time, if you go back even further, there were for years, no cost of living increases. So you got people who are still, you know, came to play catch up. And so we asked, and I say we, meaning the, the advocacy community from the Mental Health Association of New York State, I'm the vice chair, yeah. NIAPERS, which is New York's Association of Psychiatric Rehabilitative Services, and many other uh, advocacy organizations in the state have been pushing for 8.5% COLA. There's pushback, and, and now they're saying, well, you know, 3% or whatever. But the bottom line is people need to have a sustainable wage uh, to live on. A, a, you know, um, you know, even though people do this work because they love it, you can't, can't you know, can't work on passion alone. You have to pay your bills. You have to feed your family. Right. This is hard work. So that's that's really interesting. I'm wondering, could we shift gears for a minute? I want to ask you sure. about about spirituality and your mental health experiences. Mm. What, what what does that look like for you? How have you experienced that? And sort of like, what have you learned? And maybe like, where would you like to see it go? So my my story begins when I had my first episode when I was a college student, when I experienced delusions. And as we say, there's they're called delusions of persecution, if you want to call it that. I mean, I had the delusion that I was the devil. I mean, that sounds, I hate these were crazy, but it was literally like, you know, it was a delusion. But as a result of that, I, you know, was hospitalized and over the course of a number of years, would go through these periods of delusional experiences, hospitalizations, um, believing that, you know, a healer or supernatural or, like, and some people have that, those delusional beliefs. 
Um, then after time, once I, I, I will use the word stabilized, because that's, you know, that's the word that we use. But after time, once I healed, I came out of that. So the symptoms slowly went away. And this is interesting because I can even look back to like, even, even like after my experience working in um, counseling, I've gone in hard. They, they're, they're still sort of there a little bit, a little bit. And slowly they went away to the point where, okay, I don't have those thoughts anymore. Um, but they stay with me. But now I've gotten to a place through my 12 step work, yeah. through my work in my church that I do, my participate in, and my own faith journey that I've developed my own personal belief system, where I am and also where I want to be and what I'm still learning. And I am a lifelong learner in all kinds of ways. But when I think about my own personal spiritual journey, it really is about the growth and being open-minded and, and learning in ways that will help me to, as I say, develop that, that conscious contact. We know in 12-step programs, 12-step programs are great because um, for me, they're, they're spiritual. They're spiritual programs. And, and the 11th step, you know, we, we made a, we sought through prayer meditation, connect with our higher power. So I did through prayer meditation. So that's what I'm really, that's the thing I'm focusing on a lot now in my life now, Joel, is prayer meditation, you know, morning prayer. Yeah. I'm intentionally getting up in the morning doing these things. Start my day. And I'd say it's making a difference. You know, we started off the talk sort of sharing that we were professionally and personally walking in friendship together. And, you know, you had just come over, uh, I think, last Saturday mm-hmm. to watch a documentary mm-hmm. called Amongst White Clouds, a documentary about Chan, Chan being the Chinese version of Zen or the Chinese word for Zen. It comes from Dhyana. Dhyana is a Sanskrit, which means meditation. It traveled to China, it became Chan. When it traveled to Japan, it became Zen. We know it is Zen, but Zen, Chan, and Diana all just mean meditation. And talking about the spiritual aspect of mental health and sort of like, I know you express deep curiosity about amongst white clouds, and you mm-hmm. and I even had talks about meditation. I'm just wondering if you could speak a little about, about what meditation is for you now. It's for me personally, especially with a person living with a uh, a brain that is going a lot uh, fast. <laughs> it's my brain. It's trying to slow it down, put the brakes on a little bit and uh, and give it a rest. That's the thing more more than anything. And you know what? It's true too, Joel. My quality of sleep has gotten better. I'm sleeping through the night. And mind you, I'm exercising. It's a whole other thing I do. But the sleep, my quality. So, you know, I, I meditate every night before I go to sleep. Not a long time, 10, 15 minutes. That's it. But I, I then I pray and I, you know, go to bed. Yeah. And and also when I when I when I meditate, I of course I, I, I focus on my breathing. Um, and then sometimes, you know, it's interesting. I I, I will sometimes uh, use like a, a mantra to myself. I will repeat a mantra, um, or or sometimes I will just listen. Do I do I hear any like messages? One of the things that I've come to realize is that this is so interesting that you talk about messages and messaging and receiving messages. In in too much too much of that it becomes a symptom and it becomes a problem and it can interfere with our quality of life. But in a moderate measured dose, it is a fundamental part of human being, a fundamental part of our spiritual connection with something greater than ourselves, and Mm -hmm. necessary for our guidance in life. So, you know, one of the things that I I like to say is that, you know, I grew up uh, Jewish and, you know, if you look at the star of David, 
the bottom parallel line could be look at looked at like earth or the physical or even the body itself, our body. The top parallel line could be construed as like heaven or the spiritual, our psychology. And so when there's too much spirituality, it, we, we neglect the body. We're so preoccupied with spiritual matters or thinking or delusions and whatever forms they take. If you, if you reverse that and you go too much into the physical, you're just the body. There's no spiritual in your life. There's no faith. So you need yeah. this balance. You need this balance of like the spiritual and the physical. We're very much the two, the two parallel lines in the Star of David. You know, it's taught that in, in the Star of David, the top parallel line, heaven descending to earth, and the bottom spiritual line is the physical or earth ascending to heaven. And in the middle is where you want to be. It's it's the moderate human experience. You know, it's funny because people say, oh, silent meditation, whatever. Well, they have um these uh these uh, ambient sounds, right? That you can use, and I'm and I'm I'm just one of these people. I love sound. I just, I have to confess. So I don't do sound meditation, but I use one. It's called angelic choir. Oh wow! And, and it's a loop. It's a loop of just like this. It sounds like a oh, like I can't do it, but it's like almost like a. You know, I know it's synthetic, but it sounds like a, almost like a like a choir. But it's kind of loops. And mind you, but it's still it's still it's a loop. It's meditative. In other words, you can you can just background. It's ambient. Um, but for me personally, I believe in angels. I believe in so beings. And, and so I think, so when I use that, it's like my way of connecting and what do you call it? Guardian angels or, I mean, there's the, of course, there's certainly angels throughout the Bible and, and, and so forth that, that are known and, and, you know, different types. So, um, that's always been fascinating to me. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about mental health versus and your program mm. coming up and what you're doing, how important music is to you and how you're doing this show, Mental Health Versus. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, right now I have a radio program called Mental Health Versus, B-E-R-S-E-S, that's on the Buffalo State Radio Station. Um, it's 91.3 FM in Buffalo. Uh, you can hear it on the Radio FX app anywhere streaming. It's uh, live. Uh, Monday evenings, 6 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S. And um, so basically, it's an idea of talking about music and, and mental health. It's like the intersection. But really, it's how um, the people I have on my show, we talk about a little bit of the work they do, but more so about the music they listen to that is a reflection of their lives and their emotional well-being in whatever way. I've had, I've done, so right now I've done 15 shows since September, but I had a young woman, actually a young woman, well, to me, a young woman, a couple weeks ago, who is a um, person who has, lives with a mental health condition and also recurring addiction disorder, was an amazing guest. And so we talk about music and, but each person has like three or four songs that we play in their entirety. And they talk about a story or stories that go with the music and why it means something. And my last guest, Joel, was amazing. Um, Aaron Moss, she is a local behavioral health provider. She had a, it was an amazing show. Talking about the music that she loves. So that's what we do in the program. So this coming, uh, well, Thursday, March 2nd, I'm doing a program um, which is based on a radio show where I'm, it's just going to be me, but I'm going to be giving a talk, but also incorporating music that I listen to, but also images. Uh, it's going to be like a, I call it like a TED talk with music. So uh, I'll be doing that um, at, at my church, uh, Pilgrim St. Luke's UCC. And um, it'll be, I, I'm still working on it. I'm still you know, kind of conceptualizing it. I think, I think it's going to be pretty cool. It's, I've never done anything like this before, but I love doing things that are edgy and 
different. Carl, could you tell me sort of where would you like things to go? Where would you like to see things go for mental health community and, and, and yourself and just in general? What are your visions and hopes for the future? My vision and hope for the future are um, for the next generation to be healthier. You know, I, so much of the work I do is uh, with young people on behalf of young people. I don't work with young people directly, but I certainly work with those who do. And I hear the stories and I hear the problems. I hear about the disruptive classrooms. I hear all these things. I hear about our kids these days that are concerning. And mind you, it's not everywhere, but it's enough that I know that we're in a crisis, a mental health crisis with youth. And if we don't help them, then our future is gone. We, we don't have a future. We really need to support the next generation more than anything. Of course, veterans and older adults. I mean, we all need support. Everybody needs support. Also recruiting more people of color. That's also needed without a doubt. I mean, for people to go see someone that isn't like them, believe it or not, some people that understand this, but it can be a challenge. If you go to speak to someone who may not look like you, isn't from your community, that might be intimidating. Or why am I going to open to this person who doesn't have my experience? What are they going to tell me? There's a few things I like to see changed. And also, what I would say more than anything is just people to speak up and speak out. One organization I'm involved with is the uh, Erie County Anti-Stigma Coalition. And we have a campaign called Let's Talk Stigma. And our website is letstalkstigma.org, where you can go on there. There's information. We have a Facebook Live once a month. Uh, and so we're doing things to try to break the stigma of mental illness. Carl, my brother, I'm so proud to call you my friend. I'm so proud of the journey that you're on. I'm very grateful to know you. The feel, the, well, I just want to say the feeling is mutual. And of course, I think uh, I also believe that people in our lives for a reason. I know coincidences. Yeah, yeah. People just talk to each other. My gosh. I mean, and the, we, the problem is we have such a messed up society that says you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. That's what that's what the problem is. If people could just talk to each other, they have these conversations. Yeah, we do have much more. It's the human condition. We all have the human condition. We all live. Yeah, you know, we all die. We all have pain. We all have joy, like feelings. We all have the same things. It's just that a lot of things get in the way of us understanding we have those things in common. Many blessings. I know I'll see you soon.